He brought an extra box of ammunition with him. He was wearing all black and he had on a gun holster. And when I opened that garage door, he snuck in and was getting ready to shoot me. And I saw him in the side view mirror. And immediately this voice took over in my head, you know, get out of this garage or you're dead. Now the garage door was coming down behind me, but I put my head down. I slammed that car in reverse and I hit the gas as hard as I could. And I busted through the garage door with the car. I was so scared he was going to shoot me in the head when I was going by him. Um, but because I wasn't looking, I smashed into a tree in my neighbor's yard. Janet Paulson, thank you so much for your time today. I believe you have one of the most extraordinary stories that anyone could ever have and live to tell about. So I appreciate you letting my show be one of your platforms to tell it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So Janet, as I said, your story is extraordinary. It's a horrifying personal experience of attempted murder and gun violence. And rather than me continuing to talk about it, could you please tell the story of what exactly happened to you on November 5th, 2015 from the beginning? Well, first, let me just start off by saying I'm an Illinois native. I was mm. um, raised in uh, Naperville and I spent all my summers in central Illinois with my family there. Um, in 1988, I came to Georgia to go to University of Georgia. And then after I graduated, I stayed here. Um, so I was married for 15 years. Um, I had, uh, I have, th they were 13 at the time, uh, twin boys. And um, the last five years of the marriage, my husband started, uh, there was some mental illness there. And it started getting worse and worse as, as his alcohol consumption got out of hand. And uh, he was a, uh, considered himself a gun collector. Um, and a lot of the guns that he had, I didn't even know about. But, um, you know, it got to a point in the last two years that I was like, okay, I've got to figure out a way to get out of this marriage. Um, you know, he was, he wasn't physically abusive but he was uh emotionally psychologically and sexual abusive and um you know i knew i was going to pay a price and um it came to a point where my boys came to me and said that he was drinking with them in the car and i was like okay this I, this this is it and um so i went to him and said you know this has been going on for a long time. You're not happy. I'm not happy. It's, it's time for us to, you know, get a divorce. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, why don't you go get the boys, try and leave and see what happens to you. And oh I was goodness. like, what, right. Why are you saying that? You know, you're scaring me. And he was like, no, try and leave and see what happens to you. And, um, you know, I, I, I kept, you know, you know, please stop threatening. It doesn't have to be people get divorced all the time. You know, this, we can do this amicably. And uh, he ended up leaving the house. And then he called my parents, he called my father. And he told my father that if I thought I was going to divorce him, I had another thing coming and he was going to kill me. So the boys and I uh, went to a hotel and I went to the police department for the first time 
um, to file a police report. And I'll never forget the officer that took my initial police report. I knew most of the police officers because I was a big volunteer in the community. Um, and they had, they knew my husband, they had a few run-ins with him. Um, but, uh, they sent an officer out that I didn't know. And I said, you know, I, my husband's threatening to kill me. I'm scared. You know, I'm, I just want a divorce. And he kind of looked at me and he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll take this report, but let me tell you what's going to happen. He said, you're going to make up and tomorrow you're going to come in here crying and beg me to tear it up. And I said, no, sir. I, that's not what's going on here. You don't understand. I'm not going home. You know, the, we're way past that. So um, I had an attorney and we were back and forth <clears throat> from the attorney's office, back and forth to the police department because he started calling people that we knew, telling them he was going to telling them he was going to kill me. And then he started saying he was going to kill my parents. He was going to shoot them in front of me. I mean, all these terrible things. So um, my parents came into town. They were staying with me at this, you know, hiding out in this hotel. Um, and my attorney and the police advised me to get a protective order. So I went to the um, Cobb County Courthouse and I applied for a temporary protective order. And what that is, it's, um, it's issued in an emergency. By at a judge's discretion, and it um, I, I brought all the pictures of all his firearms and the five police reports, and you know, um, one of my attorneys went with me, and it was granted. Now that protective order dictated that he could not come within a thousand feet of us. He couldn't put us under surveillance. He couldn't. Um, you know, it was very inclusive. Now, mm -hmm. in the county I live in, in Georgia, it's one of the few counties in the state, there's actually a box that can be checked on that protective order that states they have to turn over their firearms. And uh, that box was checked in my case. And I gave them a list of where all the firearms were. Unfortunately, when they served the protective order, the sheriff's department, they called me. I was waiting at my local police department with my family. We had a locksmith, you know, standing by to, you know, um, everything. And they were going to remove him from the home. A lieutenant called me and said, okay, well, we, you know, found the gun you hid. Um, he says the guns and the gun safes are yours. He doesn't have a combination. I said, that's fine. When he leaves, I'll give you that combination. You can take the guns. I said, what about the one in his truck? She said, well, I don't, I can't take that one. And I said, ma'am, that protective order covers my entire property. And I can show you the verbiage. It's very clear. It says they were to confiscate all his firearms. She let him, she got the garage door opener from him, but she let him leave with that firearm in his truck. And he shot me with it five days later. Oh, my goodness. First of all, before I just jump into the obvious questions, what was that like for everyone to just write you off? It seems like the police did not give you the time of day, despite clear threats at your life, clear threats over the phone directly to your parents. This is insanity. How were yeah. you, what did it feel like to not be taken seriously? It's extremely frustrating. And, you know, that's the first thing we need to do with, um, 
you know, domestic violence, you know, it, it is you have to believe the person department putting it all on the line. And, you know, it, that it was so frightening and terrifying to do. But I had to because the threat was so credible. You know, obviously, a judge thought he was dangerous enough that he issued the protective order. You know, I wasn't, you know, overreacting or, you know, I had the five police reports from different people that had gone and said, yes, he's threatening to kill her. Um, but I felt like his right to keep that gun superseded my right to be safe. Right, of course. What is that law, that loophole in the gun laws in Georgia, is that common across the United States uh, that you can, why, why did they allow him to keep that gun in the first place because it was in his truck, which was his private property or something like that? Or why exactly could he keep that gun despite the, the forms that you filled out? Well, there is national gun legislation when it comes to domestic violence. It's a part of the Lautenberg Amendment that was passed in the 80s. And the part referring to domestic violence says that if you have a domestic violence misdemeanor or a felony, or you are under a protective order, you have lost your rights to firearms. Most every state in the nation complies. Georgia does not. Now, out of the 158 counties in Georgia, there are three or four that do comply with that. I happen to live in one that does, but it's so unclear to police officers whether they can take a farm, whether they can't. And in that case, come to find out afterwards, all she had to do if she was not certain she could take that firearm, all she had to do was call in for a search warrant for his vehicle. All she had to do was reach back up to the judge and say, hey, there's one in the truck. I know it's there. I've seen it. You know, da -da. can I get that one too? Um, but unfortunately she didn't. And, um, yeah. And you paid the and, price for it. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, the very next day he violated that protective order by, uh, activating a tracking app on my phone and my children's phones. We got an alert that said his phone number is now tracking you via the Sprint family tracking app. And we freaked out. So mm. there was the locksmith was at my house. I mean, we were like, there was a ton of people here, you know, trying to secure the home and this, that, and the other. And I took a screenshot of our phones with my mother's phone. And I sent that to my, you know, kind of uh, representative at the sheriff's department. because That was a clear violation. So this was on a Saturday. The, the TPO was issued on Friday. He violated it on Saturday. So he went to court to try and get a felony um, uh, TPO violation. But the judge at the time said, well, you know, someone else could have had control of his phone and activated mm. that. We don't necessarily know it was him that did it. So he only issued a misdemeanor. Now, if he had issued the felon, felony like we had asked, he would have been in jail until we went to court on the protective order because it's a temporary protective order. It's issued an emergency. It's only valid for 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, both parties go in, in front of that judge, kind of plead their case. And then the judge decides whether it's you know, permanent in place for at least a year or if it goes away. If it goes away, you get your firearms back. 
but they only issued a misdemeanor. So he got wind of it and they didn't pick him up. So Monday morning, he went and prearranged for bail with a bail bondsman. He went and met with an attorney and he put down a $2,500 retainer. He turned himself in at 6 p.m. and he was out by 8 p.m. And that was Monday night and he shot me Thursday night. Okay. This story, I want to ask a question with a lot of respect though, because I know that this was probably a hard thing to recall and tell about in, in much detail, or at least I would imagine. I know you've had a lot of practice telling it, but what it, so on Monday, you said he got out of jail or he paid his, his bail. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday is when he shot you. Could you walk me through Thursday, uh, November 5th? What ex- where were you coming from? What was the scene exactly when you first saw him with uh, the firearm? So um, we had had all the locks changed and the garage door codes changed and all of that. And my local police department, because, you know, they'd found out that he had violated the protective order. I was at my local police department telling them about it because the sheriff's department is who um, administered the the TPO. Anyway, um, I'm sitting there and one of the police officers says, gives me a piece of paper. (laughs) And he goes, hold up this piece of paper. So I did. And he took a pen and he jabbed it through the paper and he said, that paper's your protective order. This pen's a bullet. You need to arm yourself. We were really worried about him. So I went that morning down to the same courthouse that I got that protective order and I applied for a concealed carry permit. We are brought to you by Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. Look, this place has the best pizzas. I've tried thousands of different pizzas from thousands of different pizza places, and that's not an exaggeration. I love pizza, and I love, love pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. So pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza is obviously amazing, and not only that, they also offer a daily happy hour. So if you call between 4 and 5 p.m. and order a pizza, you get the second one of equal or lesser value for free restriction supply. You can even call at 4.45 p.m., order your pizzas, Pick them up at 8 p.m. and you will still get that happy hour discount. For the most delicious pizzas around, head nowhere else but Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. Call them up and place your order today at 815-692-4602 and pick it up at 405 East Locust Street in Fairbury. I love Marshalloni's Pizza. Let me tell you about Fairbury Furniture. Fairbury Furniture is Central Illinois' premier furniture store. This family-owned business offers a vast selection of premium furniture items from all of your favorite brands, including Sealy, Best Home Furnishings, Leather Italia, Tempur-Pedic, and Ashley, just to name a few. Right next door to their gorgeous 7,000-square-foot furniture showroom, you will also find the Fairbury Furniture Mattress Store, home to all of the latest and greatest mattresses in any and all sizes. Here at Fairbury Furniture, the staff is helpful and friendly, and they're also well-stocked with all all of the mattresses, tables, chairs, recliners, couches, rugs, and decorative pillows that your heart desires. Make your home interior beautiful, comfortable, stylish, and delightful when you shop at Fairbury's own Fairbury Furniture. And I applied for a concealed carry permit. Came in the mail six days later when I was in a coma fighting for my life. So that morning I went and did that. I went to my attorney's office to file or to sign divorce papers. Um, I went to the grocery store and then I, um, my kids played football and my dad had taken them to football practice and I went to meet them at football practice. 
So it was about six o'clock. And because I had those groceries, I told my dad, I'm going to go home early and put these groceries up. I'll meet you guys back at the house. So it was dark and I hit the garage door opener and I pulled my car in and I hit the opener for the door to come down. And as it started coming down, I saw it kick up in the rearview mirror. And I'm like, that's weird. And so I go to get out of the car and I look in the side view mirror and he's standing three feet from me and he's cocking a nine millimeter. He had snuck in the garage when I opened it. He had been waiting for uh, all of us. He didn't know I was going to come early by myself. He knew we were at football practice. He had parked his truck two miles away. He had dredged through the woods in the side of my house, jumped a creek. He brought an extra box of ammunition with him. He was wearing all black and he had on a gun holster. And when I opened that garage door, he snuck in and was getting ready to shoot me. And I saw him in the side view mirror. And immediately this voice took over in my head, you know, get out of this garage or you're dead. Now the garage door was coming down behind me, but I put my head down. I slammed that car in reverse and I hit the gas as hard as I could. And I busted through the garage door with the car. I was so scared he was going to shoot me in the head when I was going by him. Um, But because I wasn't looking, I smashed into a tree in my neighbor's yard. And when I did, it blew out my back windshield and um, it kicked me up. And I look and here he is walking down the driveway at me with that gun pointed at me. And in my head, I'm like, okay, get away from this tree. Get back to the street or you're dead. You, you got to get out of here. So I went to put the car in forward a little bit to get away from the tree to then reverse out to the street. And I hit the gas too hard and I careened across my driveway down a little embankment into the woods and I smashed into some trees. <clears throat> and um, I was kind of on a slight <clears throat> embankment and I turned and looked and here he is just a couple of feet from the, the window with the gun pointed at my head. So again, I ducked down. <clears throat> Somehow I got that passenger side door open and I tumbled out and I started running through the woods next to my house, screaming bloody murder. And I heard pop, pop, pop. And I felt stinging in my chest. And I was like, oh my God, I knew I'd been shot. And I was trying to make it to a neighbor's house. And I was like, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. So I decided to try and like turn around and go back over my driveway to another neighbor's house. And when I came up that embankment, he shot me in the leg, but I kept going. And then he shot me in the leg again. And I fell over in the middle of my driveway and I was kind of laying on my side, looking at the garage door hanging off the hinges. And then I saw him walk up that embankment to the edge of the driveway, just a couple of feet from me. And I watched him shoot me two more times. And I knew that I was paralyzed with the last shot because I felt this jolt of electricity going through my body from the bullet that hit my spinal cord. And um, I was just thinking to myself, oh my God, this is not happening. This is, this is not, you were so close to getting away, out, away from him and out of this madness. This is not happening. And then I saw him move out of the corner of my eye. And so I'm laying on the driveway and he stood over me and I closed my eyes and I held my hand up. I didn't want to see his face. That was the last thing I had to see. And I held my hand up. I just, I just said like, 
don't shoot me anymore. I'm dying. And the only thing he said the entire time was he kind of looked down at me and he said, watch this. And he cocked the gun and he put it to his head and he pulled the trigger, but it clicked. He had used all the ammunition firing at me. And he kind of looked at the gun. He looked down at me <clears throat> and he, he ran off somewhere. And again, I knew my life was slipping away from me. And I just kept telling myself, like, don't you close your eyes. Don't you close your eyes. You stay awake till there's someone here that can help you. And I felt, you know, this calming presence come over me. And this time it wasn't my internal voice. It was a different voice. And, you know, I, I really think that was God's voice. And it, he said, if this is too much, it's okay to close your eyes. You'll be okay. But I was scared. You know, I kept thinking about my children and how we were so close to getting away from this. And I didn't want it, you know. So I was like, no, I'm going to fight this. And then I heard my neighbor yelling. Little did I know, my neighbor had witnessed this because they heard me crash into the tree and they were all on 911 with, uh, you know, and I heard my neighbor yelling, stop shooting, stop shooting, the police are coming. And I heard faint sirens and I'm like, okay, you hang on till they get here. And they started to get louder. And then I saw him coming back up the driveway and I was like, oh God, please don't let him come over here. Please don't come, let him come back over here to me. And I think he thought I was dead, but he laid down next to the driveway by me and I heard a gunshot and I saw his legs kick up. Um, he had shot himself in the chest. Um, and then the next thing I knew, there were police officers standing over me and from my local police department. And they were like, Janet, what happened? What happened? I'm like, he shot me, he shot me. And they were like, where is he? Where is he? And I was like, I think he's over there. You know, they couldn't see him because he had an all black. And um, they kept asking me over and over who had shot me, who did it. And I kept thinking like, I've told you enough already. Where's the ambulance? That's what I want to know. Where's the ambulance? I found out later the reason they kept asking me that is because as more officers arrived, they needed multiple officers to hear me say who had shot me in case I didn't make it. And he did. So the next thing I knew, there were paramedics, you know, cutting my clothes off and asking me, where have you been shot? And I, I was, you know, it, it was weird. You know, I thought he had shot me in the bank at the back of the ankle, but no, he had shot me in the femur. I thought he'd shot me lower in my left leg, but he had shot me in the knee. So anyway, they're, they're slapping these bullet bandages, they call them, over me to try and, you know, stop the bleeding. Um, they loaded me on a, um, on a stretcher. Um, and that's when I started to feel pain. Um, but they put me in the back of the ambulance, you know, they had oxygen on me and I mean, they were working as fast as they could. And, um, there were two paramedics in the back with me. And I just remember telling myself, you do everything these guys tell you to do. You keep focused on them. And they would say, okay, Janet, we're 10 minutes from the hospital. Okay. And I'm like, 10 more minutes. Okay. I can hang on 10 more minutes. And then they would say five more minutes. I said, five more minutes. Okay. And then they'd say, we're turning into the hospital. And I was like, oh, thank goodness we made it. And then I knew we were in the ambulance bay because the ambulance kind of 
rock back and forth going over the speed bump. And then I don't remember what happened after that. I, I blacked out. Um, but I woke up three and a half weeks later uh, in the hospital. Um, he had shattered my right femur. He shattered my, he shot me six times. He shattered my right femur. He shattered my left knee. I have it through and through in my thigh, right by your main artery there. He shot me in the back and it came out here. Um, he shot me in the side and it took out a third of my right lung. And then the last shot, uh, hit my L2 vertebrae. So I was, um, uh, paralyzed, a paraplegic and, um, I just remember my parents saying when I woke up, like you're safe. Tri-County Carpet and Flooring in Fairbury is the premier flooring store throughout Livingston, McLean, and Ford counties. From choosing the perfect flooring to measuring an installation, Tri-County ensures top quality products and services. Their trained professionals boast precise measurements, straight cuts, and perfect fits, while their showroom houses a multitude of gorgeous, top quality, name brand carpet and flooring options in the latest styles and colors that are durable and long-lasting. With free estimates, design consultation, and contractor and multi-room discounts, Tri-County in Fairbury is your one-stop shop for all of your home and business flooring needs. Pay them a visit at 19 Jan Lane in Fairbury, Illinois, right off of Route 24, and give them a call at 815-692-3666. Tri-County Carpet, your flooring paradise. Fairview Haven is an apostolic Christian community where choice is valued, growth is encouraged, and life abounds. Their team strives by the grace of God to provide the highest quality of life to all those that they serve without regard to race, color, religion, or their ability to pay. Fairview has created a haven that supports the spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional needs of all who call it home. Here they seek to embrace life and honor the dignity of all of their residents and their right to make choices for themselves in a safe and nurturing environment. This unprecedented level of care extends also to their staff, who are loved, cared for, and appreciated beyond measure. If you want to be a light in our world, if you think you have the skills to provide great care for others, and if you want to have an immense and positive impact on the lives of many of our most beloved community members, then consider joining the team at Fairview Haven in Fairbury, Illinois. Loving as Jesus loves, Fairview Haven. I just remember my parents saying when I woke up, like, you're safe. Um, somehow I knew that, you know, I know that they had been talking to me while I was in a coma, but um, he, he lived. They had him in an ambulance right behind me. He was in the trauma bay right next to me, um, but he didn't make it. And it wasn't till, so I was in the hospital for about six weeks. Then I was transferred to the Shepherd Center here in Atlanta, which is a spinal rehabilitation um, hospital. And um, I had told my dad, I was there for about three months. I was like, Dad, you've got to find those paramedics and tell them that I made it. So my dad went to a couple of different fire stations until he found them. And they, they were ecstatic. 
And um, about a week later, six of them came up to see me at the Shepherd Center. And I'm bebopping around in a wheelchair. And I thought they were here to see me. Um, and they had Cobb County, you know, patches on. And I rolled over to them <clears> and I was like, you guys looking for me? And they were like, Janet? Oh, my God. We thought you'd still be hooked up to tubes and all this. And they started crying. And I was like, wow. So we went back to my room and they were kind of telling me, you know, what it was like coming up on the scene. And one of them said, we've never taken anybody as critical that to the hospital that that made it. And they said, and then, you know, you were DOA when we got you there and the trauma surgeon cracked your chest and that's a Hail Mary. He said, we've seen it done 50 times and it's never worked once. And I said, what do you mean? Well, I knew I'd had a ton of surgeries while I was unconscious. They had to, an exploratory surgery where they were looking for bullets. They had to repair my lung. Um, my heart had stopped. So what they did, my trauma surge did was he, they take a tool and they jam it between your ribs and they crank it to get access mm. to your heart. It was from blood loss. He clamped my aorta. He shocked my heart with electrodes and he massaged my heart with his hand and it started back. <laughs> and I, I knew they had done a bunch of, but no one had ever told me that they had done that. And I, I felt so scared and humbled at the same time. Like I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. And, um, yeah, so, uh, they had to repair my, um, my right leg with the rod <clears throat> because the femur was shattered. That bullet is still in my leg because it fragmented when it hit my femur, my other knee, they repaired with plates and screws and, things like that um good heavens um oh sorry were you gonna say something well you know they had to operate on my lung they you know had to do that i've had two thoracotomies because later i had a pulmonary embolism they had to take me back and operate on me again um i had compartmentalism syndrome uh, because they had pumped me full of so many blood products in the trauma unit my whole body swelled up to a point where the muscles in my left leg were going to explode. So they had to put in these long, they're called fasciotomies, cuts. Uh, same as like when they, they do a brain stent, you know, they will give your brain room to swell. It was the same thing with my left leg. So they had to put in these major cuts to let the muscles swell outside of my body um, until the swelling went down. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for the Shepherd Center um, because um, it's one of the nation's best rehabilitation hospitals for spinal cord injuries. Um, I've been an outpatient ever since, and this was six years ago. You know, I just had my six-year anniversary. Um, but I ran into my trauma surgeon probably about a year later <clears throat> when I was there for an appointment. And he said, Oh my God, Janet, you're doing, you are a miracle. You are our miracle. And I go back every year to the trauma center and to Shepherd just to thank everyone and to the fire station to thank everybody. Um, but he said, you know, you're the 1%. And I didn't know what he meant by that. And I said, what do you mean the 1%? And he said, well, 
out of a hundred times I do that procedure to save someone's life, it works once. And I thought about a hundred people standing in a circle, holding hands, looking at each other, like, who is it going to be? And it was me. And because it was me, I'm sorry. That's why oh. I feel an obligation to be an advocate, to speak out to, you know, because this, this was looking back on it. It's like, of course he was going to shoot her, you know, and there were some preventative things that we could have done. You know, I'm not blaming everything on the police, but my goodness, you know, we could have uh, threw it some roadblocks. You know what I mean? Absolutely. um, Yeah. He also, uh, they tried to uh, save him doing the same thing they did to me, but he, um, you know, he was a force. His alcohol level was off the charts and he wasn't strong enough. And, you know, I lived and he didn't. But again, I'm thankful because there's a couple of, there's some things that happened that if it, they had not gone in my favor, I wouldn't be here today. The first thing is that we had changed the locks and garage door codes. He had been trying to get in the house. My parents found a screen that he had ripped off and he was trying to pry a window open. And then we found the cover to the garage door keypad on the ground. So he had been trying to get, if he had gotten into the house and ambushed me in there, I wouldn't have been able to put a distance between us. The second thing is that my car was totaled in this, but if my airbags had gone off when I hit the tree in the back and then I hit the trees in the front, I wouldn't have been able to get out of that car. I would have been trapped by the airbag and he would have shot and killed me. And then the other thing I found out later is that he went and he put two bullets back in that gun when he reloaded. And again, for whatever reason, he didn't come back and shoot me again. And again, I got it, the skill of my trauma surgeon, the, the, how quickly they were able to get to me on my neighbors on the phone for 911. And again, this, this was meant to be a bigger tragedy. He would have killed my boys in front of me and told me it was my fault. And he would have killed my parents in front of me and then he would have killed both of us. So I'm thankful that it was just me. I mean, to say this story is insane is a vast understatement. I, I There's so many questions I want to ask. I'll, I want to start with this, though, because you experienced something that basically none of us are ever going to experience. Be, to be knocking on death's door, to have the invitation right there, all you have to do is accept it. Yeah. Were you, what was, what was that feeling like? And were you ever tempted to relax or was your desire to be there for your boys when they came home from football, which I'll ask about next, when they came home, was that desire to be there for them way too strong that you didn't even give giving in a second thought? It was a very comforting and soothing feeling and voice. And, you know, Again, it was like, if this is too much, you know, you'll be okay. You can close your eyes. You'll be okay. But again, I just kept thinking about the boys and I was scared and I was afraid if I closed my eyes, I wouldn't wake back up. Um, So, you know, I just kept that inner voice, my voice telling myself, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to 
You're going to try and stay awake. You're going to fight this. You wait till there's someone here that can help you. Mm -hmm. And hearing you talk about how you, you gauged how much more time you had until you got to the hospital and you said your mental dialogue or monologue, you stay awake, you know, you're five minutes from there, 10 minutes from there, five minutes. Now you feel the speed bumps. I'm staying in this. You stay awake. Thank goodness we're here. Like that's, that is a fight. And I like that. Like that fires me up a little bit. First of all, do you think, I'm going to ask about your mindset, but before I even do that, let me ask something a little darker. Your sons, they're twins. They just uh, graduated high school, athletic, handsome boys. They eventually would come home from practice. What was their whole experience if you've talked about this? How did they respond to the situation when they maybe saw it or learned of it? Okay, well, um, one of the coaches on their football team was a Cobb County police officer, and he knew everything that was going on. And the, my local police department called him, and he immediately canceled practice. And Aqua police had called my dad and said, he's, he's shot her. And my dad went to like get in the car and come here. And they, they said, no, you know, don't go to the house. So some other friends of mine, you know, the word spread, spread like wildfire in our community. And some of my girlfriends got a hold of my dad and said, you wait there. We are coming to get you. We're coming to get the boys. Don't tell the boys what's going on. And they came and they told boys that they took them back to their house that I had a appendicitis and they took their phones from them. They kept the news out. There were news crews in front of my house, reporters. I mean, it was the whole nine yards and they took my dad, the police department told my dad, just go straight to the hospital. Well, he doesn't live here. He lives two hours away, but my girlfriends got him and they drove him to the hospital and the boys knew something was up. And um, my friends brought them to the hospital and, you know, I was on life support and my body was just so swollen up. My eyelids were inside out and a really awesome ICU nurse kind of walked them through. This is what you're going to see, this equipment, that equipment, this is what it means. And then my parents had to tell them that their father was dead. The crazy thing, though, is that, you know, they they knew what was going on. I mean, he was abusive to them as well. Not physically abusive. He was just mean. He had, you know, these fits of anger. He was, you know, just all these things. And when I got home from the hospital four months, five months later, the sense I got from them was that they were relieved that it was over. And they were just so happy that, that I lived and they have turned out to be amazing young men. They are not going to be future abusers. They are 19 now. They are super sensitive to, you know, domestic violence issues, um, issues that Americans with disabilities face, you know, cause now their mom's in a wheelchair and, you know, they had to start doing stuff to help. Um, um, but also they are, um, 
graduate high school with honors. They're both on baseball scholarships. Um, Fisher is at Citadel uh, and Hunter is at Piedmont College in North Georgia. So yeah, that's my greatest achievement is raising men that are going to be good future husbands. You know, that's really important to us. Um, and the other thing that they did while I was, I had always kept my main name, which is Paulson. Um, I didn't get married until I was 32 and I was big into my career and this, that, and the other. Mm. So I just never changed my name uh, when I got married, but they had their father's name, last name. When um, I was in the hospital, they went to my dad and they said, grandpa, we want to change our names. We don't want to have wow. his last name. We want yours. So yeah, July, I was shot in November. And in July, we went back to the same courthouse and applied to get their uh, last names changed to, to, to Paulson. And it was funny. We had to go in front of a judge. It was a different judge. He wanted to know why we wanted to do this. I told him what happened. And he said, I'll never forget this. He asked the boys what you want. He said, you know what? We take these protective orders really seriously. When someone violates them, we throw the book at them. Oh. I wanted to say, well, sir, not actually my case, but I just wanted him to sign the paper and get the heck out of there. So I didn't say a word. I was like, oh, uh-huh, okay, yeah, just sign it. We want to go. I'm just, I'm, my PTSD is through the roof being in this place. Right. My goodness. Yes. Your, your boys, like, like you said, they're on scholarships. They graduated with honors from high school, incredible young men, and they responded to this terrible situation in the best way that they possibly could. And you can just look at how they responded and know that they're on the right track because they, they were relieved because they love their mom and they finally had a, you know, a, a relatively normal life. I mean, you had to go through hell to get there, of course, but they just it's amazing you really how do i say this in the right way you were while you were cursed with this whole situation you were very blessed to have to have raised your sons the way you did good job on you because they responded in the right ways their heads are on straight and good on them too i mean there's some things to be thankful for amidst the things to just loathe you know it's it's an interesting situation Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and they saw me, you know, I've been in intensive physical therapy for, um, you know, for three years and they saw me like continuing to fight to try and get some ability back. And through that physical therapy, I was able to um, get some movement back. You know, I can walk with forearm crutches, you know, a very short distance, um, but then I have to use my wheelchair. Um, I'm classified as a hemiplegic, so my paralysis uh, is from my right hip to my right toes. So I can't move my foot or my toes or my ankle, and the muscles in my right leg only work about 30% compared mm-hmm. to my left leg. Uh, but you know what? I'll take it. You know, right. I, I have mentored uh, many other domestic violence shooting survivors, and they took one shot through the neck, and they're a full quadriplegic. So I am extremely grateful, you know, and um, through the Shepherd Center, I got involved in, I've always been an athlete and I got mm-hmm. involved in um, adaptive water skiing um, and I competed in the nationals 
and I made, I got a spot on the U.S. disabled water ski team. So I skied on Team USA in Norway of December or of the summer of 2019, and we won a team gold. So, you know, Holy that was smoke. the thing. Yeah. I tell them I never want to hear something is too hard. No. Mm-mm. Man, this... Like I said, the story is so interesting because while it is heartbreaking, it's also extremely motivating. From business logos to building signs, Aftershock Decals and Designs in Fairbury creates graphics and prints that will make heads turn. If you need signage for any occasion, Aftershock's team of creative experts are virtually unlimited in their capabilities. They can create the highest quality full and partial vehicle wraps for cars, trucks, trailers, semis, and race cars, as well as small to massive banners for all occasions. They also do yard signs, decals, window perforations, stickers, custom logo designs, and much more. When you need to promote your business, develop your brand, or enhance your image, do it all with the area's most trusted graphic design company, Aftershock Decals and Design in Fairbury, Illinois. Give them a call at 833-332-2548 or pay them a visit at 116 East Locust Street in Fairbury. And I want to ask, you said you were an athlete. If anyone looks at your pictures from the past and really looks at you now, it's not it's obvious that you were an athlete and probably a serious one. Do you believe that your athletic mindset has helped you in a big way through the rehabilitation process? That idea that on the other side of extreme physical exertion and extreme physical work, there is reward. Do you think the athleticism mindset helped you? Oh, absolutely. So I was 45 when this happened. I was in the best shape of my life. Um, I uh, was an avid hiker. I taught trampoline aerobics. I did kickboxing, you name it. And I just ran the Savage Race a month before. And I came in first in my age group at 45. <laughs> the trauma surgeons told my parents, if she had not been in such good physical condition, she would not have made it. And also, you know, working out all the time and, you know, I lifted weights. I did all this. I was kind of already in the mindset for, for physical therapy. Like instead of working out, you know, it was the physical therapy, um, you know, and at the shepherd center, they have a different brand. Uh, I graduated through all the physical therapy therapy programs to their top tier program. And I worked with uh, not only physical therapists, but exercise physiologists who could really, kind of determine what I needed to work on most to get the most amount of mobility out of based on my injury, because every spinal cord injury is, is different. You know, um, I'm an incomplete L2. Um, you know, my friend, Nicole is an incomplete L1. Our injuries are kind of similar, but I've got another friend. It it just manifests itself differently in everyone. So Mm. my spinal cord is bruised. Um, and you think about it like a dark spot in a banana. So my brain is trying to send signal to my leg. Half of that signal is getting bounced back up to my brain. It's not getting through. And unfortunately your brain will interpret those as pain, pain signals. So I do have, you know, chronic pain syndrome in my right leg and, you know, a whole host of other things. But again, you know, I'll take it. It's better than being dead. Right, absolutely. I've heard I've heard that whole situation likened to a kink in a hose, you know, yes. like the water's trying to go through, 
hardly anything. Sometimes nothing is getting through and it's just building up the pressure on the, on the back end. So yes, I'm debating on saying something because there's some ongoing research when it comes to paralysis and getting better from it. First of all, I want to ask two questions. Did you, did you regain some function of previously entirely shut down parts of your leg? And have you heard of modern research on that whole topic? Because I've really dove into it for reasons. I had a, a family member. My mother actually is paralyzed on the left lower half. So on her lower half on the left side, actually, mm -hmm. and her left arm, I apologize. But so I've really looked into the research and there is some very interesting literature about mm -hmm. It's like meditation. You're really mm -hmm. consciously trying to feel and visualize your left hand working. You constantly yeah. send the signal in hopes that like a hose, a kink in a hose, mm -hmm. that the water pressure will be too great and it'll yeah. break the kink and mm -hmm. it'll start to work. So apparently you have heard of that. And have yeah. you yourself regained any function of previously limp limbs? Yes. So I pretty much regained all the function in my left leg. Um, I've got a little bit of paralysis in my toes. Um, and, but, you know, unfortunately in my right, you know, we could say 30% of like my quad and hamstring and calf came back below that. Nothing came back. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> my sensation is a little spotty in that leg. I can't feel certain things. Um, but it's, this took, you know, many years, you know, for these things functions to come back with a lot of hard work. And, um, you know, I'm six years out now. They say you can still get function back, um, but it, it just, it starts to slow down the further you get away from your injury. Um, but I have participated in some research studies at the Shepherd Center using um, electrical currents in your brain. You know, what you're, what, you know, you try to do is to rewire your brain to send that signal mm -hmm a different way, you know? So yeah, yes. I mean, there's, you know, research on stem cells. I mean, all kinds of spinal stimulators, there's all kinds of, you know, stuff out there. And I, you know, I do believe that at some point, maybe not in my lifetime, you know, we will have figured out how to, you know, bridge that, that gap, unkink the hose basically. Mm -hmm. And like you were kind of saying there, the brain is plastic. Even I have heard stories of guys who have had entire regions of their brain damaged in certain accidents. These areas that literally are responsible for your arms moving, that mm -hmm. completely dies. But because your brain is plastic and certain regions have the ability to take over the function that was yeah. previously in this region that's shut down, mm -hmm. you can literally assign arm movement to a different region of the brain. It's absolutely incredible. To me, it makes me think there must be a God who designed this thing. It's way too incredible. But uh, anyway, we could, that's a whole nother episode, but doggone it. You give me a lot of hope and I'm going to be telling my mom about this because it's a hard thing to work through the working yeah, through the paralysis, but mm -hmm. all it takes is knowing that one person like you has done it. So mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. And Janet, we're getting towards the end of this amazing conversation. And I really don't mean to get too political here, but given your experience, I'm very eager to hear your opinion. What are your thoughts and opinions on the topic of gun control in America 
or perhaps Georgia more specifically? Um, well, uh, my uh, PTSD was, I'm so sorry. Um, oh, no, it's totally fine. I, I love dogs. You know how it is these days. You try and get your animals to. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> so I had tremendous, and I still do, PTSD, where I'm always looking for someone to pull a gun on me. And um, after I was injured, I um, decided I wanted to learn how to fire a firearm and to have my own. So I went and I was, you know, trained by a certified instructor and um, on how to, to, to use one. Um, my thing is, I don't want anyone taking my gun, but I'm not threatening to kill anyone. I don't have a protective order issued against me. There are small things that we can do, just abiding by the federal law, that, you know, can help prevent some of this. I just feel like, you know, I, I'm not talking about, you know, you talk about gun control people are like, you're not taking my gun. I'm like, well, I don't want your gun if you're not threatening to kill anyone. You know, I mean, this it's just like common sense stuff, you know? And um, most mass shooters, and even the thing in Wisconsin yesterday, or two days ago, have domestic violence backgrounds. And we need to get serious about, you know, not allowing these people to have access to firearms. Um, but I was going to show you a picture. Yeah, this is from my walker, but it was a really good shot. <laughs> That's awesome. But, yeah, you know. I, I, it's very frustrating that you can't have a conversation, you know, without some people just going all the way to the, you know, to the oh, extreme. Right. And it's like, dude, do you really want someone that's threatening to kill your daughter running around with a firearm that's clearly unstable? I mean, it's, I think we can do a better job, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I completely understand that people with serious, uh, risky underlying mental health issues of course previous charges of violence i mean i don't think many people would disagree with you although i'm sure plenty do uh yeah. with you know that they shouldn't have guns but you yourself are a, a licensed gun owner yes but here's the thing um that helped a little bit with my ptsd because instead of me reliving the images of the gun being pointed at me it kind of flipped a little bit where the you know I was holding the gun, but mm -hmm. we cannot solve this issue at the shootout level. There is no right. way I could have because I've had people tell me that. Well, if you had a gun that night, this wouldn't happen. What? No, there's no way in hell I could have gotten a shootout with him. And 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 you know, and that's our answer. Your best bet of you know not getting shot is if you know if you're a good shot. I mean, that's unacceptable to me. Um. Hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so elaborate on that a little more because I know for a fact people watching this are going to be thinking if she just had a gun, this would have all been over. Why can't it end in a shootout? Because I was ambushed. I, my first response was flight, get away from him, get away from this situation. And uh, you know, he had a nine millimeter and, you know, uh, the gun I have now is a revolver, but that's just, I, I was too hysterical to even, you know, 
even attempt that. And the other Mm. thing is that there are many women, and people don't believe me when I say this, who are in prison right now because they shot and killed their abuser and then a jury didn't buy it. I had Mm. someone make a comment on one of the, you know, YouTube videos with John Stewart shot. She should have shot him first. Well, I really didn't want to be in jail and have the state raising my children. Really? You know, the, the other thing you'll hear is, well, why didn't she leave? Well, that's what I was trying to do. He, mm. he shot me. YouTube you know, trolls I, are vicious. Oh, awful. And, you know, what I found out now is that the most dangerous time for a woman to get out of a relationship like this is when you are trying to leave. You're 50% more likely to be injured. And if they have access to firearms, your chances of being shot go up 500%. You know, it's really? not rocket science. It's, you know, because once they get that protective order, they're ticked. They're mad. And after I turned him in for the violation, oh, he was going to teach me a lesson. You know? Absolutely. Just to clarify, do you think, though, that people should be able to own firearms in, in the way that you do as long as they meet the criteria that would make it, you know, determine them uh, oh, responsible I, absolutely. enough? Absolutely. And you know where I carry my gun? In my walker. Hmm. God help anyone that tries to break into my house. <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if it makes a woman feel safer then absolutely um but again i just think we have to do a better job of keeping firearms out of the hands of you know domestic violence perpetrators and um you know some of these other things and again i mean look what even though it wasn't with the gun look what happened in wisconsin the gentleman that ran over the five people in the christmas parade he had an extensive domestic violence background he had actually been in jail and recently released after running over somebody else. Jeez. Domestic violence. Right. Like when is, when are we going to, you know, err on the side of caution, you know, that guy should not have been out of jail. You know, he was running from a current domestic violence situation and he killed those innocent people. Mm -hmm. So you see it all the time, the people that make headlines for some, terrible crime they often have done something like that if not the exact same thing prior yeah. and we just didn't put the take the time to you know keep them from doing it again yeah absolutely and if you look at these mass shootings las vegas um the church in texas um great points these people had domestic violence misdemeanors and felonies but were still able to get firearms and then they went in and killed massive amounts of people it's a it's a quick you know it's a uh indicator that you know you are a violent person right and we'd be fools to ignore that yeah so janet as i said in the beginning i am honored that you came on to my show today. Your story is firstly horrifying, but ultimately it is extremely inspiring and your insight is so valuable. And I commend you for your mental toughness, your courage and your work ethic and your willingness to tell your story today. So I guess we're gonna go ahead and wrap this thing up. Thank you so much for your time today, Janet. Who's got two thumbs and wants you to subscribe to the Paul Garcia Show on YouTube? 